Thank you for listening to Southside Baptist Church's podcast. If you would like to know more about us, please visit us online at southsidesbc.org. Again, that's southsidesbc.org. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, or if you would like to know more about Jesus and why we serve him, please email us at info at southsidesbc.org. Thank you for listening. You know, when I was in college, I had a lot of great opportunities. I had so many opportunities that I had to boil it down into one little sentence, and that was really even hard to do. But during my time in college, I got a lot of amazing opportunities that I, I haven't been able to really experience in a long time. One of them, I got to play collegiate soccer at the, the not the highest level, at the lowest of college levels, like, like NCCAAD2. Like, okay, you got D1, D2, D3, then you got the National Christian Collegiate Athletic Association, which is like, you know, Indiana Wesleyan, Bethel, Cedarville. Well, actually, they're NCAA now. But, but kind of them, and we're like, nope, we're Division Two. But I still play college soccer, and I don't tell you where I play, and I don't say what level, but I still play college soccer. And I don't tell you that I only redshirted, but I still played college soccer. That was a lot of fun. I got to learn about marketing and print and promotional and social media and all these various different things because that's the way the culture was going. And I had a guy who brought me under his wing, and he actually legit worked himself out of a job, and I took his job at the age of 20 as a marketing director. Like, it just doesn't make sense. I was able to actually become great friends with my professors. This is one of the super cool things about the college I went to. It was so small, and the college town, it wasn't a college town. It was called Hickville with some houses. Like, that's, that's legit where I live. Like, you think, like, Bremen is tiny? Uh-uh, Bremen is like a metropolis based on where we were at with college, all right? But it was such a small community, the teachers and the professors actually poured themselves into us. We got to know their kids. We got to go over to their house, have movie nights, and just hang out and just get away from college life and get to go do that. And some of those professors are still my mentors to this day because they just simply opened their home to us. I had so many great opportunities in college, but there is one opportunity that I had that I think far transcends all the other opportunities that I had while I was at Northland. When I was at Northland International University, and a lot of you guys know my story. If you don't, basically it's this little tiny college where, uh, ready for Michigan, Wisconsin hands? You ready? Here you go. Wisconsin, where the UP meet, we were right at the very tippity-tippity-top of Lake Michigan. So if you think it's cold up in Green Bay, Brett Favre don't know nothing. Okay, like negative 30-degree wind chill is regular up there. We got three feet of snow in a weekend. Like that's just, and, and what's funny is we don't shut down for anything. Like we got shut down one time for ice and snow, but it's because professors were driving into ditches on their way to the school, which was like a mile away. But we don't shut down for anything because eh, it's just snow. Whereas around here, let's not talk about Georgia and snow. Okay, let's not talk about Georgia and snow. But I had so many great opportunities, but one of the greatest opportunities I had was something that Northland called Extension Ministries. They called them their extensions. Uh, Dr. Matt Olson was the president at the time, and the chancellor at that time was Doc O, Les Oldala. And they both had this, this motto, this mantra that they literally lived in, and they quoted over and over and over again. And this was that quote. And it has literally impacted how I do everything in the student ministry. And here's the quote. You're not preparing for ministry. You're already in the ministry. In other words, you're not preparing to go and be the church when you get older. You already are the church. So go do something. Go serve. At Northland, part of our actual... uh, Not academic calendar necessarily, but kind of the whole... um, requirement, I guess. Like, you know, you had to sign up for your classes. You had to sign up for this. You had to sign up for that. But you also had to sign up and you had to tell them what church you were going to serve at for at least that next semester. So by the time week three, you had to say, I am serving for Nicole and I. It was Berean Baptist Church. That's the church that Nicole and I just started 
to, to, to go as a part of our extension. But see, here's the crazy thing about living in little Nowheresville, Wisconsin, where the closest Walmart was 24 miles away and the closest Starbucks is 90 miles away. I don't think you understand the sorrow I have right now. The closest Starbucks was 90 miles away. Oh. It's back, baby. I'm back. But the so that's, that's kind of where we were at. We were in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Like you literally were driving and all of a sudden it's like there's a university here. Why on earth would they do that? I don't know, but that's where I went. But see, the problem is, is since it's such a small little town, there was only like two churches within like a half mile drive, 20 minute drive. And literally most of the college kids that decide like, oh, I don't like, you know, I'm just going to go here just for whatever. So I'm going to go to that church. So there's like a thousand college. We only had 500 in the university. So there's a lot of kids there. But a lot of us actually drove upwards towards 45 minutes minimum one way to go to church every single Sunday. Nicole and I, we chose to go to a church in Escanaba, Michigan. Does anyone know where Escanaba is? Yeah? Yeah? Woo! I sure, I sure hope you do, Nicole. We were there a lot. Um, Escanaba, Michigan, it was 60 miles one way from the university. And not just, we didn't just go there on Sundays. We'd go there Sunday during the morning. They were an hour time zone ahead of us. So for all of y'all who say, man, 1030, whoo, that's too early. It's a 10-minute drive. Don't tell it to me. Don't tell it to David. David had to leave at like 5.30 this morning just to get here on time, his central time. Same idea that we had to do with David. We had to get up when the sun, like the sun wasn't even up. We were halfway there when the sun decided to show up. Like that's how early that it actually was. We had to drive 60 miles one way. We were there all day. We would stay at someone's house. There would be Sunday night church and choir practice and all the other fun stuff. We would leave, get back to our campus at about 10.30, 11 o'clock at night every single Sunday. Oh, and by the way, we did that on Wednesday too. We would go 60 miles one way, two times a week. And I'm not complaining about it. It was one of the greatest things I ever got to do. We got to be invested in this church, and they loved us, and they cared for us. It was a small little countryside church, like 40 people on a good Sunday. And everyone seemed to be, like, related somehow, like, in some weird fashion, like those, like, old school, like, backwoodsy Baptist churches. It just, it is what it was. But so the, here's the crazy thing, though, okay? Nicole and I loved every minute of it. One of the things we loved most, though, about going 60 miles one way was we got to know our extension crew team extremely well. And in fact, we became best friends with some of these people. People like um, Liana Lichtenwalner. That was a fun last name. She was a senior when I was a freshman who actually kind of brought me in and said, you're going to run this thing as a freshman and went, oh, okay. And then there's other people that we had along, like my buddy Ivan, who's down in Georgia now. We still stay connected with him. Other people like Sarah and Becky and these people that we served alongside with, like we might not see each other for a long time, but there's, a, there's an amazing connection that we have because we spent so much time with them in a van going back and forth to Escanaba for church. And, and it's one of the fun things that we got to do, and it was just more of like a, a pleasure for me and more of a uh-oh for, for Becky and Sarah. Becky and Sarah, they were great friends of ours, super sweet. They were actually missionary kids from Argentina. So they knew English super well. They spoke it fluently, but they spoke Spanish just as well. But see, here's the problem when you get someone like Mark who doesn't really speak true English. Like, I just throw words together and hope they kind of make sense. And someone from, like, Argentina where it's like, it has to legit say what you're trying to say. There was a lot of disconnection points. And when I discovered this, I had a whole lot of fun. It was just an absolute blast. Like, they did not understand simple things that we've learned in English for forever. Like, Ameri and this isn't even English, but, like, American idioms? Like, they didn't even know what American idioms meant. Like, one time I was like, Sarah, don't let the cat out of the bag. And she's like, what? What? Why would you put a cat in the bag? And 
Seriously, like that's like inhumane. Like wh- why? First off, why would you want to even put a cat in the bag? And then it's like, okay, they gotta explain it. And then it's like, that's the bee's knees. And she's like, what? What's the bee's knees? It's cool. It's legit. It, this was before dope came out. So I didn't say that was dope. I didn't get to say that back then. But all these various different things where they had a hard time understanding our American idioms, even to the point of like, if I would say like, you know, this is just a Mark lingo. I say Papa squat to my teenagers all the time, which they mean, take a seat, sit down. And she's like, you're going to blow up by doing what? Like they just didn't understand. And here's the deal. Okay. The English language is one of the most complicated languages that there really are. You know, a lot of people, when they learn Spanish or French or these languages, they actually have a governing rule body who governs the language of those places. Like, there actually is, you do this and you don't do this, you do this and you don't do this. Do I know a lick of Spanish? Uno. That's about it, and it's because of the card game. But they have governing bodies that actually rule over the language. And in English, over here, there, there ain't no rules about nothing. I let that sink in for a little bit. There are no rules except, you know, I before E except when it's not. Like that's the only rule that you learn. It's I before E except when it's not. There's so many weird, fun, fascinating things about the English language. And one of the most confusing things about the English language that people like Becky and Sarah who are from Argentina and other people like foreign exchange students from uh, Spain that, that have been here in our church even the last couple years, they have a really hard time with these things called oxymorons where you take two completely different words, you put them together, and somehow it makes a whole new word. Like, you think about it, shampoo. Think about it. You put that in your hair this morning. Nasty. Think about it. I love oxymorons, though. They're a whole lot of fun. And just for your enjoyment, this is because I like to laugh. I like to have fun. You know, just because it's a church, I don't think it needs to be one of those things where it's like you also got to turn on your, like, you know, religious monk. No, no. We're supposed to enjoy being in the presence of one another in the presence of God. So I brought in some of the lists of my favorite oxymorons for you guys to enjoy. And I promise, I promise it actually has a little something to do with the message. I promise. Okay, so here's some of my favorite oxymorons that exist in the world. You ready? Jumbo shrimp. (laughs) Bubba Gump would be thankful for that one. How about this one? A black light. And then it's not even black, it's purple. And how about this one? Spend to save. Oh, all the husbands looked at their wives and went... That's you. Because it's like, you know, you know what I'm talking about when your wife comes. This is not Nicole. This is actually the reverse in our household. But just for sake of argument, I'm going to talk like this. When you, when you go, hey, baby, look how much I saved. And, and it's like, how much did you spend? Oh, don't look at that. Look at the big number that Meyer put at the bottom of how much I saved. It's true. We think, you know, you can spend to save. But it's really, it's not true. And you just get into debt. And then your wife yells at you that your, you know, credit card's getting cut up. She has not done that yet. But... Oh, sometimes she gets close. Which, by the way, if this just caused you some crazy marital stress and strife and you're going to go home and have a little talk, you're going to have a little conversation with your spouse about this, in two weeks, Pastor Scott's starting a brand new marriage series. So buckle up because you might need it. All right, here's another one. You ready? The Walking Dead. Hashtag AMC. What about this one? Bittersweet. It's not bitter and it ain't sweet. It's bittersweet chocolate. Huh? That doesn't even make sense. How about this one? Weirdly normal. (laughs) What's up, Rhonda? What's up? How about this one? That was my only option. That wasn't your only option. Option means two things. 
And then how about this one? Okay, slightly addicted. I know what y'all thinking. I am not slightly addicted to coffee, all right? I went two days last week without drinking it, and I almost managed. I'm not slightly addicted. But here's the deal. We have so many words in our English language that fall under this category of oxymorons, where you take two different words, they mean completely different things, but then people want to put them together to create a whole new meaning. But today, I want to introduce you to a new oxymoron, okay? One that's actually kind of taking over our society by storm, but you might not even be aware of it. And here is that oxymoron. You ready? Christian atheist. A Christian atheist. Two whole different words, different meanings, but when you put them together, they make their whole new meaning. It doesn't take long for when you do a Google search about this whole idea of Christian atheist to realize, yeah, this actually is a thing. Yes, you'll see a book by Craig Rochelle, which, by the way, an amazing book, but you'll start seeing Huffington Post articles. You'll start seeing BuzzFeed things. You'll start seeing CNN posts. You'll start even seeing churches that are claiming to be Christian, like atheistic Christian churches where they're, they're atheist churches where they come, they sing some songs. Like you've heard the Beyonce Mass. Like they come, they sing some songs, they come together, they do this thing, they have a woo-woo, fire a message, and peace out, see you next week. You know, a lot of us Christians, we hear that word, and it's like, are you kidding me? Do you know what you're saying? Are you dumb? Like, you cannot have Christian atheists and put them together. But I want to give you the definition of what the Christian atheist thing is, because when you look, you're going to get these different definitions of what a Christian atheist actually is based on who you kind of ask. Some people might say, like, you know, like, God was Jesus, but then he died when he died. That's one view. There's other different views. But someone boiled down the entire conversation of Christian atheists and came up with this actual definition. Here's the primary view of a Christian atheist or Christian atheism. Christian atheism is a spiritual approach using the teachings and example of Jesus while denying the existence of a literal God. Christian atheism is a spiritual approach using the teachings and examples of Jesus, Christianity, but denying the existence of a literal God. Atheism. Christian atheism wants you to believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher. He was a social justice warrior. He was a help to the herd, an example for us to follow, but that's it. That's all Jesus was. People today have no problem believing that Jesus was a man, and in fact, that's not even necessarily an argument anymore. People believe that Jesus was a man, but he was just an amazing one, and that's it. He was a good teacher. We should follow him. We should do the golden rule, but at the end of the day, Jesus is just someone that's good to follow, just like that teacher at your high school that you absolutely love to follow. Now, for many of us in this room, we shake our heads because at the end of the day, we believe and we know that Jesus is God. And he's not just some crazy rabbi spitting out this truth of, okay, he thinks he's God, but he's just a good moral teacher, but just shove him in the box over there because he's a little bit crazy. We know that's not true, but here's the problem, okay? Many Christians today are actually no better than what I just described in Christian Atheists. There are so many people in the world today who go to church, they sit in pews, they may even serve in the children's ministry, they may even lead outreach programs to impact the community, but I think we can still call them a Christian atheist because they say they believe in God, but they live as if he doesn't exist. Many Christians today actually will say they believe in God, but they live as if he didn't exist. They may claim to follow Jesus. They may claim to have an understanding of the gospel, but their lives don't match up with Jesus's teachings, not in the slightest. And here's the deal. To make sure that we don't point fingers at people around us where it's like, he's talking about you. 
We don't want to do that. Here's a question that I think we need to be asking ourselves every single day. And here's that question. Oh, and by the way, we're going old school. I got no notes behind me and nothing in your bulletin. So start chicken scratching on your arm. You ready? Here we go. Here's the question that I think we need to ask ourselves every single day. Am I living a life that looks like I don't believe in God? When people see my life, would they know that I actually follow God? Or is it until that I actually say I go to church that they even perk up and they go, really? I didn't even know. Am I living my life as if I don't believe in God? And to help us answer this question and help us get some, maybe some, some truth and some, some sustenance, a good foundation to be able to, how to understand and answer this question, I think we need to go to Jesus himself to ask Jesus, okay, so how do I, how do I actually live a life where I actually act like and I live like I follow you. So grab your Bibles and go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I'm sure some of you guys are already there, but those of you who like me, you're probably just flipping there. But John chapter 15 is where we're going to be at. For the last handful of weeks, we've been in a series called The Gospel According to Jesus. In this series, we've been debunking commonly held beliefs about religion, Christianity, and what it actually means to follow Jesus. And if you've missed any single week, like I encourage you because I'm going to just be touching, referencing, go back and listen to some of those. One week got corrupted on all platforms. It was a bad week. I apologize. But go back and take a listen to those weeks where Pastor actually talks about what it actually means according to Jesus, what the gospel actually is. Take a listen to those messages to see what it truly means to follow Jesus and common thoughts of today's world that actually are not true about Jesus and what he says about himself. But today, we're going to take a bit of a different turn, okay? We're actually going to be focusing a little bit differently. And today, we are going to be looking at an account, a narrative, when Jesus, excuse me, was talking with his, ready, 11 disciples. We're going to be going to a passage where Jesus is talking to the 11 remaining disciples while he was in the upper room the night that he was going to be betrayed. And it's the 11 disciples because Judas Iscariot is already out getting the Pharisees so that Jesus can be crucified. So Jesus is in the upper room. These are his last thoughts. This is the rabbi's closing thoughts to his students of what he wants them to know, what he wants them to be, what he wants them to believe before he actually goes. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's to come and what to do after he's gone. He's given them hope and he's given them assurance that although he will be leaving, not all will be lost. That even though he's leaving, there still is hope. Today, we're going to enter into this narrative because here's the deal, okay? Jesus was preparing his disciples for the time that we are actually living in right now. Jesus was preparing his disciples for the time that we are living in right now. And what do I mean by that? Jesus is gone. He's not on earth anymore. He's not walking around the earth. You can't go sit at Starbucks and talk with Jesus about stuff. He's sitting up at the right hand of the Father. He's not dead. He's not dead. Remember, we talked about that. You only live once. Jesus said, hey, nope, came back from the dead. He's living in heaven at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come back to set up his earthly reign, his earthly kingdom here on earth. Which, by the way, this is just a little tad point. Um, a lot of people say when they die, they can't wait to get to heaven and be in heaven for forever. 
Newsflash, you ain't going to be in heaven for, for forever. We're going to be living on the perfect earth with the perfect ruler and the perfect place at the end of time. That's what I'm looking forward to, and I hope you are too. But at the end of the day, Jesus is not here. So what does Jesus want us to do? That's the question. While Jesus is not here, what does he want us to do? How do we make sure we live a life where we both confess Jesus as Lord, but also live like it? How do we keep Christ the focus of our life? And the title for today's sermon is, How Do We Put Christ Back Into Our Christianity? Let's answer the narrative and actually see what Jesus says. So grab your Bibles, go to John chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's plenty of ones around you. You can take one of those home, use your table of contents at the beginning, get you where you need to go because I'm stalling right now because the pastor didn't even mark where he was supposed to be reading today. So here we go. John chapter 15, we're going to pick up in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through verses 8. Here we go. I am the true vine. This is Jesus speaking, by the way, when you see red letters. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the words I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. His banner over me is love. Now that song is going to be stuck in your head the rest of the day. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them up and they throw them in the fire and they are burnt. If you remain in me and my works remain in you, ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and you prove to be my disciples. So here's the question. How do we make sure that we keep Jesus in our everyday how do we make sure we keep Jesus in our everyday life? Here's point number one. Again, I don't have stuff on the screen, so I'll say it a few times. How do we make sure we keep Jesus in our everyday life? First, we must realize that God is, keyword, actively at work in our day-to-day -day lives. We must realize that God is actively at work in our day-to-day -day lives. We must realize that God is actively at work in our day-to-day -day lives. In this passage we just read, we see Jesus actually pulling a typical Jesus. What do I mean by that? He's actually taking something from everyday life that the disciples actually be able to know, recognize, understand. Take that and apply a spiritual truth to that physical object. And this time, it's the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine, the vine dresser, you're the branches. This is a reference that the disciples would actually know extremely, extremely well. Because in that culture, the vine was everything. In fact, it was on coins. It was on archways. It was literally everywhere. And you talk about, you know, like Jesus turned water into wine, and then, then there was this, and then there was this. They referenced wine a lot in this culture because the vine, the vineyard, the grapes are an extremely important part of this culture. So they knew exactly what he was talking about. So Jesus says, I am the vine. And not just the vine, I am the true vine. Now, here's the crazy thing, okay? The first six words that we read in this passage is literally an entire sermon, like, in and of itself. So we're going to go fast, and we're going to do it in, like, five minutes. You ready? Fifteen minutes into five minutes. Here we go. In these words that we see just saying, then we see Jesus saying he's making the last of his, quote-unquote, I am statements. 
which point to the truth that he is God. It's the fact that whenever you see Jesus saying, I am, it's actually a reference back to Moses. I don't know if you knew that. When Jesus saying, I am, it's a reference to when Moses was actually in the desert, came to the burning bush, and God told him, go to the Israelites. And Moses said, God, who on earth am I supposed to tell them sent me? And what does God say? I am. Whenever Jesus says, I am, it's a reference to that. Because back in Moses, it was supposed to be, who sent me, God? Who sent me? And God said, tell them, I am sent you. No longer. Jesus is now saying, I am here. Back in Moses, it was the fact that you're going to represent God. God says, I no longer need representation. I am here in the flesh. Whenever Jesus says these I am statements, he's actually pointing the fact that he is God and not just like a good person, not just some random person, not like, you know, another prophet like next to Mohammed. He is who? God. Whenever Jesus says, I am, he's saying, I am God in the flesh. So Jesus says, I am. But then he continues on and he says, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, this word true is actually extremely significant in this passage, okay? Leon Morris, which, by the way, is one of the greatest scholars. They call him a Johannian scholar. That's just a big fancy word for he knows the Gospel of John really, really well. That's all that really, word really means. He is a pastor. He is a teacher. He is a theologian. He's one of the greatest authors, in my opinion. He actually had this to say regarding what it meant that Jesus isn't just a vine, but the true vine. He says this, we should bear in mind that there, um, let's back this up. We should bear in mind that there are passages in the Old Testament that speak of Israel using vine imagery. See Psalm 80, 8 through 16. Jeremiah 2, 21, and Ezekiel chapter 15. Each time, however, it seems that God is pointing out Israel's sin. Thus, we should understand the thought that Christ is the true vine as marking the contrast between a faithless Israel. So every time God talked about the vine in the Old Testament, it's the fact of you're the vine, you're connected to me, but every time he references it, it's the fact of you keep doing whatever you want to do. Jesus isn't just a vine who's connected to God. He's actually the vine. He has been the plan since the beginning. We look at Israel and we see the promise of Abraham way back in Genesis where God said, through your offspring, the world will be blessed. And the Israelites always thought, you know, that, that's us. Like, We're going to bless you. Like that's us. But every single time they fail, they fail, they fail. Oh, by the way, the whole Old Testament is about their failure. Wouldn't you like to have a book about all your failures? And oh, by the way, it's the word of God and every Christian in the world is reading it. Yeah, it kind of sucks, doesn't it? But here's the problem. Israel was going to bless the world, but not specifically just Israel, but who through Israel? Jesus. Jesus through Israel, was going to be the one to bless the nation. So when he's referencing, I am the true vine, they instantly, because they know the Old Testament, they're good Jews, they study the scriptures, they had the first five books of the Bible memorized. They knew that Jesus was saying, yes, Israel was the vine, that's bad, but I'm the true vine. I'm actually the one that is connected to God. So not only is God here on earth, that is Jesus, but Jesus wasn't just God in the flesh. He was also the fulfillment of the plan, of God's plan from the beginning. And what's that? To bring all men back to God. And in fact, we learned about this two weeks ago with Pastor Scott talking about the passage in John 3 with Nicodemus. So I encourage you, if you want to know more about that, go back and listen to that passage from two weeks ago. It's over on our website. But either way, here's what Jesus is saying, okay? Jesus is saying, is I am the true vine, the true plan of God. But here's the deal. 
Many times we think God's work long ago, or he worked back then, or he worked when I got saved. But God doesn't just stand on the sidelines. In fact, according to Jesus right here in the text, God is actively involved in our daily lives because Jesus is the vine, the connection to God. But what does the passage say? God is the vine keeper, the vine dresser. In my translation, it said the gardener. When was the last time you saw an active gardener just chilling in his house, not doing anything, expecting to get fruit? You don't. I mean, yes, I know I'm a millennial. I know I go to Meyer. I think everything grows at Meyer in the back, and then I get my fruit there. But no, there's gardeners that actually work and tend to their actual vines. <clears throat> it's cold season. I love this. But here's the deal. Just like Jesus just said, he's the vine. God is the caretaker of the vineyard. And in this passage, we see God the Father specifically doing two things as the gardener, as the vine dresser, as the vine keeper in this passage. Here's the two things God actively does in our world today. He removes and he prunes. Got it? God removes and he prunes. Let's read verse 2 again real quick. God removes and he prunes Verse 2 says this, Every branch in me that does not produce fruit he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Now the verse that we just read is actually a verse that has caused a lot of splits and a lot of separations in the Christian world and denominations and Christianity at large. Because here's the problem with this passage when you first read this passage, in and of itself, it seems like God is saying, or Jesus is saying, if you were in me but stopped producing fruit, you're gone. That's what it says. That's what it sounds like, right? It says, anything in me that does not produce fruit, God gets rid of. So a lot of people think when they see this passage, that's talking about the whole idea of you can fall from grace. In other words, you once were saved but you stopped being a Christian, so therefore, you're no longer a Christian. You're no longer a believer. And if you read just this passage, it sure seems like it, doesn't it? Like, hey, we're Bible-believing, we're, we're Bible-believing Baptists. We, we, we believe the whole Word of God. But people will say, but you don't believe this one. So what do you do? What do you do when you read something that you don't understand? What do you read when something that, that seems a little contrary to your faith? Before you actually make a truth, a dogma, a this is the point of theology of what it is. You need to see what the whole counsel of God is. You need to see what other passages in the Bible say. You need to see what, like, Jesus is speaking, so let's see what else Jesus is trying to say to fully understand, is this saying, yes, you can, once be with Jesus, and then you no longer can be. So we need to read Scripture before we make any hard doctrines. And when we read Bible, when we read the Bible, we read other passages like this. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. So what is this passage saying? It's saying you can't earn it. Works won't get you there. It's our faith in Jesus that provides us our salvation. Our faith isn't found in our, you know, what our works is. Our, our salvation is found in who Jesus was and what Jesus actually did. So what makes us think if we can, cannot earn it on our own, what makes us think we can lose it on our own too? If it wasn't ours to take, how could it be ours to lose? If it's not ours in the first place, but by God's grace, then it's not up to us to keep it. It's actually up to God to keep our salvation. Elsewhere in the chapter, in, in this, this book, the, the Gospel of John, John 6, 37 through 40, it says this. 
All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I'm going to raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes, key word, believes in him, may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Just like the last passage, it's up to Jesus to hang on to our salvation, not to us. So it's not up to us to make sure our salvation is secure. It's up to Jesus to make sure our salvation is secure. And here's the deal. This text that we read in John 15 actually confirms that. People stop at verse 2, and they don't want to read verse 3. Because in verse 3, Jesus tells his disciples that they don't need to worry about God casting them out. They don't need to worry about God throwing them off to the side because they were already been cleaned by what? The word, the truth, the gospel. The gospel, according to Jesus, is the fact that whoever comes to me will not be cast aside, but I will raise him up on the last day. So what is this referring to? You know, personally, I have a hard time thinking that Jesus is saying, do good or be screwed. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. But rather, there will be people who act the part. They will act like Christians. They seem to be in Jesus, but they are not, and the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. When Jesus said this, I can't help to think that Jesus had Judas Iscariot in mind here. In fact, we see just a little bit ago that Judas just left. And now he's just talking to the 11 disciples who we know went and changed the world. These are the 11 disciples that continue to follow Jesus. So Jesus said, hey, all of you in here, you're cleaned. You've been cleaned because of my word. But Judas Iscariot, he's just a poser. You know, I couldn't imagine this, but Judas actually lived with Jesus. He saw Jesus do miracles. He saw Jesus heal the blind man. He saw Jesus cast out demons. He saw Jesus raise a dude from the dead, like Lazarus. Like he, like he legit said, Lazarus, come forth. And Jesus is just standing there going, yeah, I still don't believe that. He watched Jesus do everything. He lived with Jesus. He studied under Jesus. And I want to argue that if someone can look the part while actually being with Jesus, how easy it for someone to look the part and be involved in a church under a pastor who for show ain't Jesus. There are so many people in the world today that claim to follow God. They claim to follow Jesus. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I follow Jesus. But here's the problem. They're acting the part. They're no better than Judas Iscariot. And what does the Bible say God does with those who claim to follow Jesus but are not? Which, by the way, we know it's true because a few weeks ago we even looked at a passage where it says that not all who say, Lord, Lord, we've casted out demons in your name. We've done this. We've done this. We've done this. But Jesus will still look at them and say, you're not my disciple. I don't know you. Depart from me. What does God do with those who actually play the part, who they talk like they're Christians, but they don't just like, don't back it up. They're not a Christian at all. And you can know it by their works. What does the Bible say God does? He says it two different times. He removes them. He throws them away. But more than just that, he removes it and they wither. Then they bundle them up and they throw them into the fire. 
don't let anyone not tell you that Jesus doesn't talk about hell in these passages. In fact, did you know that like three quarters of Jesus' teaching actually referred to hell? And like the next big chunk is all about money. Jesus talked about the two things that we're scared to talk most about in church, money and hell. But here's the warning that God says. There's a lot of people who play the part, who act the part, who look good on the outside, but on the inside, they're no better than Judas Iscariot. They truly are a quote-unquote Christian atheist. But God doesn't just stop there. God removes as the vine keeper. He gets rid of all the stuff that really isn't supposed to be in the vine. But what does God also do? What does God the Father also do? Someone tell me. I got 20 minutes, so I'm done, people. What does God do? What does God do? What does God do? One more time. What does God do? He prunes. He removes and he prunes. And here's the thing. We think, oh, that's cool. God wants, make, God wants to make me a better me. You know, he wants to get rid of some stuff and he's going to make me legit. But here's the problem. We like to think and we like to get to the end where we're this great, like, whoo, look at that Christian over there. That Matt Chandler, that David Platt, mm-hmm, that's really good. That Jim Elliott, that's really good. But we don't like the pruning process. We like the end result. We like the tomatoes. We like the cucumbers. We like the asparagus. Yes, I love asparagus. Don't at me. We love these things that, that come from the vines, these fruits. But a lot of times we forget that there's a pruning process that has to happen. And in the pruning process, it's not fun. It's not fun. And I'm not going to stand up here as a 26-year-old whippersnapper and say, God has done a lot of pruning in my life when I know I still have a lot more years left on this earth. So can I speak from experience of how God prunes me? Well, I can say, yeah, yeah, I can. I mean, I'm a follower of Jesus, so I know he is. But I know so many of you guys here in this, 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 this um, sanctuary, this worship center, and people watching online, you can say, I have not had a good life. My life is hurt. My life is painful. And I'm not talking about people who don't know Jesus. I'm talking about people who, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, and my life, it still hurts. There's still a lot of pain. There's still a lot of sorrow. God is actively involved in our pruning process, and he wants to get rid of stuff in our life so we can produce even more good work. But the problem with pruning is it's not fun. It hurts. Sometimes... I want you to catch this. Sometime God has to prune us because of our own stupidity. A lot of times we ask God, hey, God, why am I going through this? Why am I in this financial debt? Can't you bless my finances? And God is saying, <laughs> kidding me? You see the house you're living in? You see the car you're living in? Hey, my fault you in debt. That's your fault. You see these things, God, I can't believe. Why, I have no friends. No one likes me. And God, why can't you just give me a friend? And God's up there going, not really, but he's up there thinking, you know, if you start being kind to someone, maybe you would have friends. A lot of times we blame God for things that God had nothing to do with, but it's our own sin that caused us to do that. But we have to, as Christians, the Bible says God corrects who he loves in the same way that I'm going to correct my son because I love him, and I don't want him to be a complete just like you know, waste of, waste of space. Like I don't want him to be that. I want him to end up being a great father, husband, man, impacting his community. I want him to be that, but I can only do that unless I correct Elliot. In the same way, God corrects who he loves, and it hurts, and sometimes it's our fault, but here's the deal. 
In this passage, Jesus is even saying that God sometimes prunes us, even though we're producing a lot of good fruit, to produce even more good fruit. And in our minds, we don't comprehend this. We think, God, I'm already doing good. Why you got to do this? Why you got to do me like this, God? Like, really? Like, I'm already serving you. I've already sacrificed everything. Why are you putting me through this even more? And at the end of the, end of the deal, my answer is, is I, 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 I don't know. Besides the fact that God says that every test is a gift from God to make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He sometimes has to prune us because of our sin, but God the Father also is actively involved in our lives to make us even better, to produce more fruit, to reach more people, to help out more people, maybe to adopt more kids. Maybe it's to actually financially support more compassion ministry. Maybe it's to serve more in the church. I'm not saying that you have to keep doing, 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 doing to be close to God. But at the end of the day, the Bible says God has to prune us so we can produce more fruit. And fruit isn't for ourselves. The apple doesn't produce an apple for the apple. The orange doesn't produce the orange for the orange. They produce it for other people. And in the same way, God might be pruning you even though you're following him so that way you can go and produce more fruit and maybe reach more people for him or impact more people for him. We don't have a whole lot of time to go into this topic besides what, I just, besides what we just mainly talked about, but I do want to leave you with this one quote um, by Pastor Kent Hughes. He was the pastor over at College Church right outside of, uh, basically on Wheaton's campus. He was there for many, 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 many years. Great teacher, has written commentaries on so many different books of the Bible. He says this when it comes to this passage in regarding specifically to God pruning us in our lives. I don't want you to forget this. God's hand is never closer than when he prunes the vine. During those times of severest cutting, when to us he may seem to have departed, he's actually the closest. His pruning may pain us, but it will never harm us. When the gardener does his pruning well, he leaves just a little bit more than the vine. And similarly, the more we prune, the more of Christ there is in our lives. So we first have to understand that God is actively involved in our lives. So we keep Jesus in our everyday lives when we realize and understand that truth and that it's for our own good that God's actually doing this. But here's the deal. The passage keeps going. I know you're thinking, Mark, that was point one, and it's 1145. Hang on there. We're going to get out of here quick, I promise. Maybe not super quick, but we'll find out. But here's the deal, okay? The passage says, yes, we need to understand that God is actively involved in our life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. This one might seem quite obvious, but God's actively involved in our lives. But then we have a responsibility to actively remain in Jesus. Got that? So to actually kind of like put our money where our mouth is and put feet to our faith, we have to understand that God is actively at work in our lives, but we also have to understand that we need to actively be connected to Jesus. In verse 4, Jesus clearly says, remain in me, and that makes sense, right? But here's where it gets weird. Jesus says, remain in me, and I'm going to remain in you. But how on earth can Jesus remain in us when he's like somewhere up there and he's not here? He's in heaven. He's not here. How, here's a fun little pun. How on earth is Jesus supposed to be here with us? How does this happen? And this is extremely simple. You ready? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the deal. When you look at everything that, I'm going I'm to say that everything that's hugging this passage, like that's surrounding, that's sandwiching this passage, Jesus literally is pancaking this passage with conversations about the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Holy Spirit, bumps into this passage, and then concludes this thought with talking more about the Holy Spirit. In chapter 14, verse 18, he says that we won't be orphans in this world, but the Holy Spirit will be there. Then in verse 26 of chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit will help them remember the works and the teachings of Jesus. Then right after our passage in verse 26 in chapter 15, Jesus says that when the counselor, which is, by the way, another word for the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify of Jesus. And in verse 13, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will guide them into truth. We must remain in Jesus, but it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is just a side note, but isn't it kind of cool that the Trinity was involved with the creation of the world? He was involved in your salvation, but he's also involved in your sanctification. It's kind of cool when you think about it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit actively involved in our lives. But here's the deal, okay? The Holy Spirit will actually do a lot of the work you know, I have a lot of friends who they start, they, 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 they got saved, they got baptized, and you ask them about what's going on at work, and they're like, well, I, I just don't get angry anymore. I don't, I don't know what happened. I, I have more patience. I don't get frustrated. It's like, that's Jesus, yo. Like, like, Jesus is involved in your life. The Holy Spirit has so much actual influence in our lives that he actually will help us follow Jesus. But here's the thing, okay? We still have work to do. Our work is to live, <clears throat> and breathe and stay in Jesus. Our work as Christians is to live, breathe, and stay in Jesus because without Jesus, we can accomplish nothing. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, you know what, Mark? Uh, there's a lot of, you know, non-Christian organizations out there that are providing food for hungry and water for the thirsty and homeless shelters, and, you know, they're stopping the sex trade, and, and they're building homes and orphanages. Didn't you just say we can't do anything apart from Jesus, but they're doing what Jesus told us to do without him? And my answer is, is, well, actually, yeah, they are doing that because we're all made in the image of God and we all have this desire to help out one another. Kind of fun fact for you. But here's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't just talking about physical fruit that we need to show people, but he's actually talking about spiritual fruit. And this is the fruit of the Spirit. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. The fruit of the Spirit is uh, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I think I nailed it. That old Steve Green song, y'all know what I'm talking about? The old Steve Green song growing up? Yeah, we listened to that all the time. I, I listened, Mama. I listened, and I still know it. But the fruit of the Spirit isn't a physical fruit. It's actually a spiritual fruit. People may try, but it's impossible to love someone who destroys their family. But through Jesus... Corey Tinboom did that to the Nazis that imprisoned her. People may try to be kind to someone, but when they attack their character, when they attack their family, when they attack their well-being, even their finances, they fight back rather than knowing that God will work it out and protect them and make them better because of it. People may try to live a life where they help others get an education. The thing that King James, well, not the translation, but like LeBron James is doing for these schools is absolutely amazing. But at the end of the day, so many people that have started these schools ask the question at the end of the day of what's even the point? Many people try to do good for others, but at the end of the day, they lay at their pillows and their soul's a mess. 
They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. The good thing that, the, the good that Jesus is talking about here is the spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And here's the deal. If you want to keep Jesus in your everyday life, actually remain in Jesus and be cognitive of the Holy Spirit's working in your life. But here's the deal. There's also a blessing of following Jesus. I don't know if you knew this or not. It's not just remain in me and remain in you because that's what you're supposed to do. There actually is a blessing in this passage that Jesus gives us. And in verse 7, Jesus says, ask whatever you want in my name and it will be done. Now that's a confusing passage too. You gotta love how when Pastor Scott leaves Ecuador, he leaves me a really hard passage that takes so much time to figure out and, and talk about. But here's the deal, okay? Is this a name and acclaim it prayer? Hey, if you follow me, ask whatever you want. I'm gonna give it to you. Draw a circle around it, bro. I'm gonna give it to you. Hey, David, I like your guitar. Can I have it? Can I have it? Can I have it? That's what we think God works. Hey, God, I want that Lambo. Can I have it? God, I want this. Can I have it? God, I want you to do this. Can you do that? Do you notice the tone in this prayer and the, probably one of the issues with this prayer? You know, when Jesus mentions here, ask whatever you want in my name and it will be done, he's actually referencing something he told the disciples about five minutes ago. We didn't read it, and that's why we're not thinking about it. But the disciples already heard a lesson from Jesus on prayer. And in fact, at the very end, Jesus actually prays for the disciples and for the worlds. Here's what the passage says right before that. In chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, Jesus says that whatever you pray in my name, it will be answered, but only if it glorifies God. When you read chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18, when Jesus is actually praying for himself, for his disciples, and for his believers, he's not playing that they can, you know, have a great healthy family and have great finances and have that Beamer and have that F-350 because the F-250 is just too small. He's not telling them to pray for that. What is he praying for? That God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is amazing. When we remain in Jesus, we have access to the God the creator, the sustainer, who no one had access to before. And we actually get to align ourselves with God and pray for him. And whatever we ask in his name that will bring God glory, he will be done. Jesus is saying that the more you abide in him, the more you become like Jesus. And you'll even start praying like Jesus. The more you become like him, the more you'll pray like him, the more you'll seek the Father like him as well. And if you desire to glorify God, keep abiding in Jesus Jesus' message is really quite simple. If you want to be a Christian, you cannot detach Jesus from Christianity. There is no such thing as a Christian atheist. There's a Christian and there's someone who's an unbeliever, but you cannot be both. Now, this is actually what makes Christianity such a different religion than every other religion. To many other religions, in fact, I actually read a report on this from Ravi Zacharias Ministries about Hinduism and Buddhism and whatnot. And this is including their religion. To many religions, the person who actually started the religion is not as important as the belief system itself. There's an article in Ravi Zacharias Ministries where a guy went over to Asia and asked people about Buddhism and said, well, what happens to Buddha in here? And they'll be like, well, his principles are still the same, right? If Buddha didn't really exist, that's cool. We're still going to do our thing because the principles still remain the same. But that's not Christianity. Christianity revolves around Jesus. In fact, did you know that Christianity does not even hinge on the Bible itself? 
Ooh, I'm going to get some emails. The Bible does not, the, the Christianity does not hinge on the Bible. Christianity hinges on Jesus, and that's what the Bible's written about. Christianity hinges on Jesus' death and resurrection. The early church didn't have a New Testament like we did. They might have had some letters, but even before the, the, the apostles started writing letters, they studied underneath the apostles. And you know what? They did more amazing good in those first, like, week than what the Christian church has done in the last thousands of years. In Acts 2 and Acts 3, we see 3,000 people come to know Jesus because of, 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 of what Jesus did. Later on, we see 5,000 souls actually being added to the church. And here's the thing. It said they kept adding to the church day after day after day after day. Christianity hinges on who Jesus was and what Jesus did. So here's my question I have for you. What are you going to do about Jesus? We have eyewitness testimony. This Bible, the whole New Testament, is full of people who actually saw a dead dude walking around town. In fact, the Apostle Paul, oopsies. The Apostle Paul even said, hey, you don't believe me? Ask these other 200 people if they saw Jesus. You can't hallucinate when there's 300 people backing it up in the court of law. You only need like two or three testimonies. So why would you disbelieve hundreds and hundreds of people of who Jesus was and what Jesus actually did? Because if some dude said he was going to die and raise up from the dead and he did it, I'm going to listen to him. <laughs> I'm going to listen to him. But at the end of the day, this is what Jesus is saying in this text. I am the true vine. No one comes to God through me. There is no other alternative. There is no other workaround. There's no other wraparound. There's no other source of life because here's the deal. We try to think Jesus will get us to the source of life, but in reality, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I am the source of your life. I'm the vine. It's not just the fact of I'm the branch, you're the fruit, and something else is the vine. I am the vine. And here's my question I have for you today. Are you connected to that vine? Have you been a poser, playing the part like Judas Iscariot, and you know inside I have not actually followed Jesus? Maybe you're here as a skeptic, and you're like, you know what? I don't, I don't like this God. I don't like a God who will hurt me. I don't like a God who will do this. But here's the deal at the end of the day. You've heard the quote, no pain, no gain. If you want to get stronger, you got to work hard, and sometimes you have to tear muscles to get builder, get bigger. It's like the C.S. Lewis story. You know that really, like, What's the name of the really annoying cousin in the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia? Like with the, like the, the Vaughn, like the, the, I don't read people. The, uh, yes, 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 that dude, where he became the dragon because of his greed. And you see Aslan like tearing off his scales. And he said, it's the most pain I've ever felt, but it's the most free I've ever been. That's what God wants to do. He promises to be with us in the trials, not take them away. And he promises a better life on the flip end. So here's my question. What are you going to do? with the vine have you been trying to live the christian life on your own are you living a life that looks like you don't believe in god do you claim to follow jesus with your lips but are you constantly putting on a front god already gives us the warning about what's going to happen in this case but here's the deal that's not what god wants for you okay that's not what god wants for you we read in john 3 16 and 17 that jesus and god loved the whole world, that he sent Jesus to do this for us, to live and to die and to raise again. He didn't come in the world to condemn it, but that the world might be saved. 
Maybe you've never followed Jesus before. Maybe you have a gap in your life. Maybe you have a hole in your heart. Jesus says, yeah, you have it because you're not connected to the source. Connect to me. Maybe you're a believer, but you haven't lived like it. You're a follower of Jesus, but you haven't abided in Jesus lately. You've been living as if Jesus does not matter to you. You see your life, and you don't like where you are. Get back to doing what you're supposed to do, and that's abiding in Jesus. And when you do that, you can guarantee that you'll start producing fruit. And if you're abiding in Jesus right now, prepare to be pruned, okay? It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful, but God does it for our good. We're all on a faith journey. And here's my question. Where are you at in your faith journey? What changes do you need to make to make sure that you're living your life as if you truly believe in God?